Hello and welcome. This is where we recap each week's lesson of our women's Bible study class. This semester, we are in the book of Hebrews, and I am so glad you're with us. Let's get started. Hey, welcome back. It's week 12 in our study, and this week we are in Hebrews 9. Um, Guys, I love Hebrews 9. This chapter just is so rich, and I don't know if you can tell, I basically love the whole book of Hebrews. Every chapter has something special in it, but Hebrews 9, I feel um, just a an extra level of excitement about. There's a lot of really great stuff in this chapter. And in fact, many commentators and theologians will say that chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews represent really the the climax of the doctrinal teaching in this letter. So be looking forward to this week and then also what we have coming um, up as we study next week as well. Hebrews 9 and 10 have some wonderful, wonderful things. So uh, as a quick recap, you know, the the letter of Hebrews has been uh, showing the the Jewish audience just how Jesus is better than the Old Testament system and going back into Judaism. Um, So specifically in chapter seven, our author presented Jesus as the superior or the better high priest since he is in the order of Melchizedek. And when we studied chapter 7 a few weeks ago, we looked at what that meant to be after the order of Melchizedek, and we noted that one of the key defining uh, aspects of that order of priesthood is it's a priesthood that doesn't end. It lasts forever. So that puts him as a superior high priest than what was coming uh, to the people through the Levitical system. Chapter 8 then moved on, and our author kind of continued that argument saying, if we have a superior priest, he's going to bring about a, a new and a better covenant. A change in leadership is going to be a change in the law, right? So now we not only have a better priest, but we have a better covenant. And when we looked through chapter eight, we saw that the big difference between the co- the first covenant, the one that came under Moses, and the new covenant is where the old covenant was written on tablets of stone. The new covenant will be written on our hearts and in our minds. And so it's a much better covenant because of the, the internal nature of it. And now in chapter nine, our author is going to continue moving his thought forward. If we have a better priest, who brought about a better covenant, chapter 9 is going to show us that our better priest is performing his ministry in the better place. So let's jump in. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 right now, and then we'll stop and talk about them. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that bedded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But in the second, only the high priest goes, 
and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Okay, so let's start out asking why is our author kind of shifting his argument now and he he's moving it forward. He's as I just said, he just kind of went into talking about how our superior priest has brought about a, a new and better covenant. Why is he switching now and starting to talk about where the ministry is performed, looking first at the old covenant and where that was performed and he'll be moving forward into where the new covenant is performed in a minute. And so here's the deal. Um this is where the work of the priests is done. So it makes sense that if you're going to be talking about a change in the priest, you have to address why this new priest isn't working in the same the same place, the same old place, right? So it's a, it's a logical move for him. But it also further highlights the inferiority of the Levitical system. As you move forward in the chapter, you you know, since you've already studied it, that he begins talking about where Jesus is performing his ministry in heaven itself, the very throne room of God. Obviously, that's better than anything here on earth. But he can't just jump there. So he's going to walk his readers through what the old system was like, what what the earthly holy place or place of holiness, as he called it, what that was set up for, what it was supposed to do. And then he's going to connect that to what's happening now with Jesus. But look at that description of the tabernacle. You know, we have just a handful of verses here where he describes the tabernacle and the setup. But if you're familiar with your Bible, you know, back in Exodus, we have whole chapters dedicated to this. This is a very succinct uh, description of what that system was like. I mean, he just spends just a few verses and we've got the setup for the tabernacle. We've got what's included in the ark. And we've also got how the, the priesthood works, who goes in which section and what they do. He really kind of hits home. And then he has that line of, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. And when you read that, you think, well, you kind of did just go into a little bit of detail here. What's what's that about? I think probably a better way to understand that line is I don't need to go into more detail about this. There's a lot more detail into what was the tabernacle set up from the materials that were used to what was done at each stage from the gate through the outer courtyard and into the holy place and then the holy of holies. There were steps and rituals and there, there's it is so rich when you study that. But he thinks his audience already knows that. And so when he just spends a handful of verses here talking about that in a, in a very high level way, um, he's given like the 30,000 foot view of what the tabernacle system was, knowing that his audience or expecting his audience to have such familiarity with it that he doesn't need to dive down and get into the nitty gritty details. But for us, if you're not very familiar with that, if this studying this uh, tabernacle setup, you were having to go back and really read through the chapters in Exodus that I pointed out for you in your in your study guide, then it would be very beneficial for you at some point to go back and study that. Because as you see in studying this chapter, there is a very, very strong correlation between the work of the tabernacle and the work of Christ. So I encourage you, if this was new information for you or you realize you're a little rusty when uh, it came to to labeling the diagram of the tabernacle that was in your study guide then I encourage you hey maybe when we finish this study that's that's what you go to next I think you'll be richly rewarded for doing so
But I want to talk specifically now about the arc. Um, when our author here, when he talks about it, we have one sentence, I think, about the ark, where he just quickly gives us what was held in the ark. We have the manna. It also had uh, Aaron's staff that bedded and the tablets of the covenant, like the the stone that had the Ten Commandments on it, right? So, um, you know, we hear a lot of times those three things, they represent different different things of God, I guess. So the, the tablets of stone, for example, represent the law that God gave. The manna represents uh, God's provision for his people. Remember, because he, he gave the manna uh, to the people as they were wandering in the desert as their food supply. And then the staff that bedded represents authority, God's authority. But as we've talked about before, we know that the, the the people of Israel as in their time of the de- in the desert showed us they didn't respond well to all of all of these things of God that they were being exposed to so with the law that that wasn't honored you know that was disobeyed almost immediately right so this law that represents the the ways of God we also know that those tablets there for the people represent their disobedience the manna that was given by God to sustain them in their time in the desert was received ungratefully by the people and they complained constantly about what they were eating and how much they were eating. It was just always ungrateful. And then the staff that represented that authority, it their authority wasn't respected. In fact, they are their history is just filled with rebellion against the authority of God. So the ark, while it contains these things that represent God, it also contained these symbols that represent how the people failed the covenant. And so as we learn later on, the priest, when he goes in there, was it says there in verse seven, he goes with blood, right? And what he did with that blood was he took it and he sprinkled it over the mercy seat so that when God looked down, right, he doesn't see the failure of the people, but he sees the blood of the sacrifice that's covering the sins of the people. All right, so let's move on. Verses eight through 10 now. It says, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Listen, we don't always get a spelled out explanation of why God does what he does. And there's a lot of parts of scripture that when you read it, you can just scratch your head and think, God, I do not understand what you are doing. Your ways are higher than my ways, right? But in this situation, he gives it to us right here. We know exactly why he gave Moses the blueprint for the tabernacle. We know exactly why he wanted Moses to construct it this certain way. And we know exactly why he set up the priesthood to operate in the way that they operated. Because it says right there in verse 8 that all of that was a symbol for the present age. Okay, so that word uh, symbolic there that's used in verse 7, or I'm sorry, sorry in verse 9, <laughs> Um that is the same word that's translated parable in other parts of the New Testament. Okay? That is a the tabernacle and the priesthood was a parable, which means it was a teaching tool. All right? It is a symbol, it's supposed to help the people understand 
a doctrinal or a, a teaching uh, from God. Jesus used parables all the time when he was teaching. He would deliver a line that was um, difficult for his his disciples or his audience to understand, and so he would he would say something that was mysterious to them and they weren't getting it, and then he would explain it with an easy to understand relatable story, and they would say, "Oh, okay, I can understand that." And even now, when we study Jesus's teachings, we spend a lot of time on his parables because it helps us see and understand the the point of what he's trying to make. And so we see here that the tabernacle, the priesthood, the, the sacrifices, everything was a symbol. But in that, you know, we, we understand when we're looking at Jesus's teachings that his teaching point is what we're supposed to understand. The parable helps us get there. So just like with those teachings of Jesus, we need to look at that system from the tabernacle and the priesthood and understand that was not the real thing. That was to help us understand what the real thing is. So when you look at the tabernacle, and the priesthood and what it represents, specifically how he goes into detail about what the high priest does. Um, you have to ask yourself, okay, what is the what is what is it that this is trying to help me understand? And the one thing that keeps coming out, you know, he's already talked about the day of atonement and the priest and what he does on that in other chapters. And here he's bringing it up again because he knows that repetition is a key tool in good teaching, right? But we're seeing over and over again that it was one man who goes in front of God one time and he can only do it one way, right? One sacrifice for all the people. This idea of one, one, one keeps coming back. And that's what we're supposed to understand that that whole system was pointing towards the fact that there's going to be one way that atonement comes for people. There's one once. That's it. So we're going we're gonna to stop right there on that thought because he's going to kind of go off onto some other things in it, but he's coming back around to this idea of once. So I just want you to hold, hold on to that and keep that in the back of your mind. He also brings out here in verses nine and 10, the idea of a fault in the old covenant. And he, he kind of hit on it in the last chapter. He brings it back now in chapter nine. He's going to talk more about it now of this idea that the old covenant was external where he says in, uh, in verse nine, that it could not perfect the conscience of the worshiper. He's pointing out a key fault in how the old covenant worked because all of the things that uh, the covenant dealt with, all of the, the washings and the cleansings and the abstaining from food and drink, those are all external things. And we're also learning now those were temporary things, but they were supposed to point the way towards the, the thing that was internal and that would be eternal. But as the people were operating in the old covenant, their consciences were never wiped clean. The Jewish people were filled with guilt all the time because even after atoning for their sins and doing their sacrifices, it didn't, it didn't change the heart, you know? So he's, he's already kind of leading the way for the people to crave the sacrifice that would perfect the conscience. All right, moving on, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, 
Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. And what's he talking about there? He's talking about the greater and more perfect tent. That, that's heaven, right? He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Wow, this is getting really good, isn't it? All right, so I've told you before, and in your instructions for this week, I encouraged you to continue noting when you had repeated ideas. I hope by the time you got to this part of uh, of your reading, this uh, you noticed that this idea of blood keeps coming up. He talked about it once back in our previous section that the high priest uh, took blood into the second section, but here... In uh, these verses, verses 11 through 14, we have um, that Christ, uh, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood. For if the blood of goats and bulls and it went on, if, if that worked for your flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ work? Um, blood, 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 blood. And in fact, this chapter of Hebrews mentions the word blood 12 times. 12 times. That's more than some entire books of the Bible. I think if if I'm if I caught them all, the entire book of Hebrews uses the word blood 23 times. And here we've got 12 of them in this chapter. This chapter drips with blood. All right? This is such an important part of what our author is trying to get our our uh our readers to understand. And in fact, if you've done what um what your instructions in the study book say where you you kind of highlight any Old Testament reference or allusion or quote in yellow, and then you um, are noting or circling any ideas that are repeated. I hope chapter 9 is pretty much solidly yellow. <laughs> this whole chapter is trying to tell our audience to connect the Old Covenant, which is found in the Old Testament, to the new work of the blood, and which is why he keeps repeating blood, blood, blood. So um, looking at these uh, few verses here, and we notice that he's got this idea of blood coming up, you have to stop and, and I hope you're picturing what happened on the Day of Atonement. Because over and over again, year after year, right, the blood would be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant for their atonement for thousands of years. How much blood is on the ark? What does that look like? Can you see it? Can you see how much it took to bring peace with God for the people? The mercy seat is covered in blood by this point. And there's a very specific reason that we use blood for that or why, why the Levitical priesthood uses blood. Um, if you look in your Bibles to Genesis 9, uh, this is where 
the flood has receded and they're getting off the boat and you know, everyone's excited. Uh, in Genesis chapter 9, it says, starting in verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the flesh of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that you that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. So that's good news, right? Because before they weren't allowed to eat meat. And now after the flood, steaks are on the menu. I would be very excited about that. But look at verse 4. It says, but you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is its blood. That's a weird line, right? Which I'm fine with because I don't like my steak too, too rare. You know, I want all the blood gone. That seems totally logical. But God makes a specific point to say you shall not eat blood. It shall not be a part of your food. And it's kind of just left there. But if you look in Leviticus where we get our... Um, you know, the explanation of the laws, Le Leviticus 17. Okay, we have a whole section there in chapter 17 that if you look at the headings on um, in your Bible, it probably says something about laws against eating blood. So now we're going to get a bit of an explanation on why God didn't want his people to eat blood. Okay, so it says starting in verse uh, verse 10. If any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. So clearly God's pretty serious about this. For the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Also, oh, it says anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. Listen to that. And those few verses there, you've got two words that keep coming back, blood and life, blood and life, over and over and over again. And I think sometimes we will picture the, the Ark of the Covenant and we'll think about the blood and we'll think, oh, that is, that is dirty. Look how gruesome it is. And that's what our sins look like to God. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I've, I've heard that taught. I've probably taught it myself sometimes, but as I was studying this, I thought, you know, it says clearly in scripture that blood is life. And if the people knew the law, which I'm pretty sure they did, when they saw blood, they saw life. That's what that represents. It doesn't represent gruesomeness. It represents life. And so when the priest would sprinkle blood over the Ark of the Covenant, what he was doing was he was bringing life over the Ark of the Covenant. 
And when God would look down and see the blood of the sacrifice, he didn't see gruesomeness of sins. He saw the life that covered the sins. The sacrificial blood represented a life that would be given in exchange, right? And so here we have this great teaching point that it was going to take a perfect life to cover our sins. Man, what what a great teaching tool the Ark of the Covenant was, right? But look at what else he says there in verse 12. He also hit on this idea of once for all. He says he, meaning Christ, entered once for all into the holy places. That again brings up that symbolism of the high priest where we have one man who goes in one time, right? But instead of having to go back year after year, it's once for all, for all time. He's done offering eternal redemption. And that brings back this idea of because he's from the order of Melchizedek. And in verses 13 and 14, he comes back to this idea of the conscience, right? And he's already pointed out that in the old covenant, the conscience could never be perfected because all of the work of the old covenant was external, right? Even the law itself was written on external things, but the new covenant written on our hearts and in our minds has the ability to, what he says in verse 14, purify our conscience, right? So our conscience, our internal voice now can be purified so that we are now uh, free from dead works and able to serve the living God. I think this is a pretty powerful statement here. You know, the, the Jewish people, like I said before, have, um, have a long relationship with guilt, but we have been freed from that. When we have Christ in his life covers our sins. We no longer have to live in the guilt of things that we've done or things that we struggle with. And he doesn't want us to do that because he wants us to cling to the message of we are still safe. Our anchor, our high priest is still behind the veil and he's still interceding for us. So guilt has no place in our life. How many things are affected in your life because of guilt? You know, Sometimes guilt will hold us back from doing things because we think back to past mistakes we've made. But I got to be honest, reading this, you know, if you're feeling guilty about past mistakes and that's holding you back from doing things for God, I got to say those feelings of guilt, that's a lie. That is a lie from the devil. That is not from God. We are free from the guilt of our past. We are free from dead works to try to gain righteousness and we are able to serve the living God through the life and the blood of Christ. All right, verse 15. Therefore, love those therefores, right? He, meaning Christ, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Okay, so we're going to stop there. What's he doing here? Well, he's basically saying that Christ had to die a public death, one that was going to be witnessed by many people because it had to be certified that he was dead so that his inheritance could be given out. 
And we understand this. If you've gone through the death of a loved one in your life and, you know, there's a will involved, you understand that that person's wishes for the distribution of their assets and, you know, the breakup of their estate or whatever it might be, none of that goes into effect until two things have happened. The person has died and it's been certified that he's dead. Someone who is a benefactor cannot uh, just claim that their their loved one has died. They have to to prove it, right? You can't just walk into a bank and say, "Hey, I need to get the account from the money from this account because so and so has died." And that doesn't work. It has to go through a proper process. And he's pointing here to the fact that Christ went through the proper process by having a public death. All right. And so what's important in that is that his public death released the eternal inheritance. And that's an interesting thing, an eternal inheritance. We're going to pick up on that in later chapters. So I'm not going to get too far into that, um, but that, that's good news, right? So uh, let's keep going. Verse 18, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every command commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I mean, we're continuing on with the theme of blood, are we not? So I want to stop and point out something here because it's talking here about the inauguration of the Mosaic Covenant. Um, When the covenant was read to the people, all right, this is back in Exodus 24. Um, Moses reads the covenant to the people. He says, you know, this is where we talked in earlier weeks about God said, if you will obey, if, if you will have me as your God, you know, all this stuff, then I will do blah, 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 blah. Um, that was the reading of the covenant. And when Moses did that, the people responded with, we will obey. You know, we will do this. They were all gun ho. They were very excited about this covenant. And Moses's response was to take the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it all over the people. I mean, can you imagine being in that crowd? Just having blood sprinkled over over everything. The people, the tent. I mean, it was it was everywhere. Going around the golden calf. You remember that story from, you know, your Sunday school days? They had just ratified the covenant with God. It had been 40 days, which granted is a long time for Moses to be gone with no warning, I guess, to the people. But it was it's as you read it in scripture, it's like, okay. Here's, here's the covenant. It's instituted. The blood is sprinkled. The people say, we will do all that you've commanded. And then the very next time we see Moses and the people together, here they are violating commandment number one, right? They're already off worshiping a false god. It's like day one, they just, boom, fall on their face. So um, if, you, if you know the story, you know what happens. He is very angry with the people right? And he takes the golden calf, he melts it down, he grinds the gold um, into dust, and he mixes it with water, and he makes the people drink it, all right? And then he calls, you know, whoever is with him, 
And then Moses calls out and he says to the people who was on the Lord's side, come to me. And this is when we see the sons of Levi stand up and they they gather around Moses and he tells them to put your sword on your side, go through the camp. And it says uh, in there in Exodus 32, it says, go to and from gate to gate throughout the camp and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And then we're told that about 3,000 men died that day. There were two forms of discipline because of their sin involving the golden calf. And so, you know, when you're, when you're a kid reading that story, kind of learning that, I can totally see uh, the the actions of Levi and Moses taking seriously the idolatry of the people. And I can even understand, you know, looking back at how things were back then on, you know, they have to die. You, you see that over and over in scripture, right? But this whole drinking the, the golden dust, that I've never really understood. Like, what was that about? So I did a little research. What I found was that commentators uh, tend to go in two different ways on why Moses had the people drink the dust. The first uh, thought is that by them drinking the gold dust, he forever made the gold impure. So it could never be used again for any type of item that was going to be used in a future house of worship. So Moses knew, you know, that eventually they're going to have things, um, you know, in a, in a tabernacle and all. And so he, um, he was saying this gold that was used for the calf will not be used for the things that are going to go in where, where we're going to worship the one true God. And so by, by forcing the Israelites to drink the gold dust, um, he was forever defiling that gold. They could never use it for anything else because once it passed through their system and then, you know, came out, it, it was it was permanently filthy, okay? So job done with that. But then the second line of thought is that by making them drink the gold, which was a symbol of their sin, he was making them identify with their sin because it was inside them. It was, they had swallowed it and it was now in them. It was an internal problem, okay? So take that. And then fast forward to us who are living under the new covenant. What do we do to signify our adherence to the new covenant? Well, that's the Lord's Supper. And we take the bread that represents Christ's body. And we take the the wine or the grape juice that represents Christ's blood. And we eat it. And we drink it. And we take it in. And so just like how the Israelites were forever identified with that sin by drinking the gold dust, we are identified, but not with our sin anymore. Instead, we have the sacrifice inside of us. And so now our internal being is identified with Christ and his life and his work on the cross is now a part and our inside, our, in, our um, internal being, our conscience is purified and washed clean by that blood. Okay, moving on. Starting in, um, let me move my Bible back over. I was in Exodus. Let me flip back over to Hebrews. Okay, starting in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. 
For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Woo! What a way to end the chapter there. This section is where our author is really starting to bring it all together. And he just hammers things, just one right after another, trying to get his audience to see his points and how he's connecting the work of the Old Covenant to the New and how this is so much better. So let's let's go through and see if we can understand what he's laying down for his audience. So it says in verse 23, uh, the copies of the heavenly things needed to be purified with these rites, right? But they get the better sacrifice. Christ has entered with his own blood. All right, that is, that's a mind-blowing statement that he's making right there. But in doing so, it says that Christ now appears in the presence of God on our behalf. So if anyone ever asks you, what is Jesus doing now? You know, his work on earth is done. What's he up to now? Well, here you go. This is, this is what you tell them. He is right now appearing before the presence of God on our behalf. He is our intercessor. He is our, remember, our mediator of the new covenant. So what does, what's the role of a mediator? We use mediators here, you know, in present time. Uh, if you see a mediator, you are with another party trying to broker a peace between you before you go to some kind of court judgment, right? You use mediation to avoid a judge coming in. So that is what Christ is doing. He is mediating between us and God, bringing peace between the two parties. He's a peacemaker, a peacemaker. All right. That is his job right now. But look at this section. It says, you know, first there in verse 24, it says that he now appears in the presence of God. Okay. But on down in verse 26, it says he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by his sacrifice. So that's what he did when he came to earth. He lived, you know, lived the perfect life, died the sacrificial death on the cross. That was him appearing then. And so we see that he has appeared. He is now appearing in front of the father. And then later on in verse 28, it says he will appear a second time. So now that we've seen, you know, how faithful God is, remember how many times we've talked about the faithfulness of God in previous chapters? Here we go. We have this hope, and it's a sure hope, that Christ will be coming again for a second time. But this time, instead of being another sacrifice, this time he's coming to save those who are eagerly waiting. So let's wait a minute, because I'm saved I've already been saved. Why does it say here that when Christ comes back, he is going to save those who are waiting for him? If I've already been saved, what what is he saving me from when he comes the second time? 
Well, what happens when Christ comes back again? That's when he gathers up his, his children, right? He gathers up all the believers and he takes them back, takes them to heaven to be with the Father, with him. And so we find that when he appears again, he will be saving us from the presence of sin because we will no longer be here in this broken world. We will be removed from that, saved from the presence of sin. When he appeared the first time, his work justified, right? When he appears now in front of the Father, his work sanctifies us. And when he comes again, we find that he will then glorify us. These are the descriptions of what Christ does. He justifies, he sanctifies, and he will glorify. But let's look a little closer at that final line in this passage where it says that Christ will save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Because this author could have just as easily said those who are waiting for him. But when you think about it, everybody in the whole world is waiting for this. They may not know it, but they are. Those of us who do know about the second coming may or may not be eagerly waiting for it, right? Um, there are those who know the scriptures and know that that's a prophecy out there, but they're not anticipating it. They're not looking forward to it. They may or may not believe that it's going to happen, right? But then there are those of us who look forward to that day. We can't wait for that to happen. We are anxiously and hopefully awaiting the day of Christ's return. But I know in my own life, sometimes I've gotten wrapped up in being excited about what that day will be like because of all these things that will happen, the people you'll get to see again, um, the answers that you're going to get, like everything will be better. You know, these are all things that that we can um, really start looking forward to. And we might miss the fact that what we're supposed to be really looking forward to is just being with Christ. You know, and a hard lesson for me was learned last year when my dad died. Because, you know, when, when he died, I remember that night thinking, gosh, I cannot wait. I can't wait for the day when I can be in heaven and I can see him again and to hug him and to talk to him. But as I studied this, I think, Tara, you're clinging to a shadow. And as good as that will be, it's going to pale in comparison to what it will be like to see Jesus. And so even in the pain of losing my dad, I'm able to see that that pain and that suffering has pointed me towards the greater truth and that a reunion in heaven with our loved ones is only possible because of what Christ did for us. And that leads me to a deeper love and a deeper appreciation for his sacrifice because what, what he's given to us, this um, promised eternal inheritance that he talked about earlier, is so much richer than anything we could have had in the old covenant. So I have to, I have to tell myself that when, um, when I think about my dad or when I think about, oh man, it's going to be great to be in heaven one day for X, Y, or Z, um, all of that are our side benefits and extras, but the real thing is one day I will get to see Jesus and I will get to see his scars and I will get to tell him that 
I'm thankful, right? That I, that I loved him and I hope I get to tell him that I gave my life to him. And I think maybe that's what the author is wanting his people to understand as well. Because remember, the persecution that they're under, some of them are facing life-threatening situations. And the idea of being in heaven may come sooner for these people than what any of us may be thinking about. And so he has this urgency in them to eagerly wait either Jesus's return or their own entrance into heaven. And to be able to say to the Father, to be able to say to Jesus that I gave it all I had, that I sacrificed for you, not out of a sense of obligation and a sense of dead works to prove righteousness, but because I love you and because it was worth it. And I think that's the message for us too, to always be checking our hearts. Are we eagerly waiting for him? And not the other things that come with him, but just him. Because if you're looking forward to the other things, those are the shadows. Those are the things that are supposed to be pointing us towards him. So we're going to stop there. That is the end of chapter 9. Um, and frankly, I mean, whew, I don't know that I can talk anymore about that. But um, man, I hope you love Hebrews 9. <laughs> I know I do. It's a, it's a fantastic chapter. So uh, I'm going to close us in prayer and then study on chapter 10 next week. All right. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you again for your word. And I thank you that sometimes you make it abundantly clear the things you want us to learn about you, Lord. Thank you for that, God. And I just pray that as we study this word, we are permanently reminded that all of these good things in our life and even the bad things too, God, are things that we can use to look for you. That the things you give us are, are given to point us towards you so that we will eagerly await your return. And we will eagerly await being reunited with you in heaven one day, God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.